Hello, welcome back to Sextras. Where we talk about sex and all the extras. I'm Honey. And I'm Maria. Welcome to our Pleasure and Desire mini-series. Yeah, this is our second mini-series of season three. And we hope you enjoyed our first one, which was all about friendship. We're kind of enjoying this new format of like getting deep into a topic. Mm -hmm. Hyperfixating on a topic. Yeah, even though that might mean a couple of weeks with no episode for you guys but it's because you know we want to get the juice the juice really to come out (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah and we're we're joined by like more guests because of this format as well which is really good we've been learning a lot from all the people we've spoken to 100 percent. and this episode we're joined by Catherine roach who's a professor of gender and cultural studies at the University of Alabama. She wrote a book called Good Sex, Transforming America Through the New Gender and Sexual Revolution. So you guys should go check that out if you're interested. Yeah, and she's been studying this for like 25 years. Mm-hmm. So we really sort of get into like more of a general idea of like sex and desire and pleasure, especially for women around like what like the the societal kind of norm and message is Mm -hmm. and and yeah like the conversations that are being had around it and the changes that are being made yeah and she really gave us like a really good picture and we had a great conversation so i hope you guys enjoy yeah and if you want to watch the episode in case you missed this announcement in the last mini series we're now releasing the full video on our patreon so you should go over there and join you get loads of benefits like you'll get bonus episodes you get a free sticker you will get some behind the scenes like planning voice memo (laughs) stuff plus all the scenes that don't make the cut to you know the final audio episode and there's like the bloopers if you will it's like quite quite a good time (laughs) yeah and you'll get like a little bit more of like a community like two-way street kind of thing Mm -hmm. like you can have your input and what you want us to talk about and we'll do it so yeah you should definitely go over and join it's only 350 a month so it'd be great if we could have a bigger community over on there but yeah well let's get into the episode with Catherine. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about your book, what inspired it, what the kind of topics that you really wanted to tackle while writing it were? Uh, Yes, Uh, thank you for the invitation to be here today. I'm delighted to be talking with you and uh, to tell you a little bit about my new book. So it's called Good Sex, Transforming America Through the New Gender and Sexual Revolution. It has a focus on contemporary American society, notions of how sexuality is playing out in in America now, but it does have a wider reach also. I'm, I'm not an expert outside sort of the arena of America, North American studies, but I am thinking about the global significance of these issues also. I just got back from the UK, actually. I spent my last Uh, academic year at the University of Edinburgh on a sabbatical, a research work exchange from my University of Alabama. So this book is very dear to my heart. Um, Of all of the the books that I've written, this is the one that was most collaborative with my students. I'm a professor of gender and sexuality studies, uh, American popular culture at the University of Alabama. And I work with undergraduate students a lot in this large, um, what we call a core course. So a course that 
serves as a liberal arts um, core credit for students from across the entire university. So this book emerged from that that course, or what you might call a module over in the UK, mm-hmm. teaching about sexuality and society to undergraduates from a wide range of programs. So they come to the this our classroom uh, from programs of study in engineering, in fashion design, in biological sciences, in mathematics, uh, from business school, from across the entire university. And they come to this course, and we're thinking about issues of uh, gender and sexuality in America today, and how that's different from their their parents' generation. How there there's this moment of um, a demographic shift that entails a cultural shift, so much more openness to issues of gender and sexual diversity than ever before, and much more conversation about problems of sexual assault. The Me Too movement exploding has really made a difference. And taking away sort of taboo and shame that one shouldn't even talk about these issues. So more openness, more equity, more inclusion, more diversity. Not that it's any sort of paradise uh, by any means, but that there's, there is this sense of a, a moment of change. So this book came about because the students um, in a smaller seminar that I had taught for many years brought this sense of, of need uh, to have a curricular space to think about these issues, to think about is- issues of sexual trauma, but then also new openness for sexual and gender diversity and justice. And I wanted to impact the largest possible demographic uh, group on campus. So I, I scaled up my small seminar into this very large lecture class. And I've been teaching it for seven years now, the sexuality and society class. And that became the lab space for the book. So as I taught these, this material and we had these, these really fascinating classroom conversations with this wide range of students across the entire university, so much, they, they, the students themselves had so much that was really insightful and astute and oftentimes very moving. I knew that it wasn't just a classroom, but it, it was a research project also. So the classroom became like a lab space and the material that emerged from the classroom discussions and the students' work found its way into the book. So the book is full of all sorts of student quotes, these little anonymous comments from the students themselves about these issues of uh, gender and sexual change and justice uh, in society today. So it became like a collaborative project. And uh, although much of the material is complicated and reflects trauma, it also reflects this great sense of hope uh, around positive cultural change. And the students themselves give endless hope for the future, this this insight into an important moment of cultural shift and a uh, a, a very positive sense of ideally where things can be going. So it's a, a book that's dear to my heart in that way. I'm delighted that it's it's found its way into the public realm now. Okay, good. Could you define a little bit about like why why you called it good sex? Like mm-hmm. what what is the definition <laughs> of good sex? I mean, I'm, I know the book unpacks it, but where does that come from? Yes. Yeah, so I I chose that title, the good sex title, very deliberately because I wanted to play on the dual senses that this word good carries. So a, a grand old word, uh, one of the oldest words in the English language, and it carries uh, this this fascinating dual meaning of good as in moral ethical, uh, upright, you know, upstanding, doing good, but then also 
the sense of pleasurable, satisfying desire, feeling good. So the two interplay, they intertwine in this notion of good sex that I'm talking about as part of this cultural shift, a, a cultural moment of transformation. So thinking about good sex in terms of positive sexuality, we're seeing more openness to a, a positive, sometimes called sex positivity, positive sexuality, seeing sexuality as a normal, natural part of of human condition and people have the right to their sexual choices as long as those choices are consensual and respect partners autonomy so things like same-sex marriage becoming legal in America it was in 2015 and now being ratified again by the US Congress in a bilateral vote uh, just this past week and increasingly around the world more and more countries are making same-sex marriage uh, marriage equality enshrined in law so good in that sense, uh, the, this positive sexuality trend, um, making an argument about this, this sex positivity. So I'm interested in how that word good, there's a certain controversial, I guess, catch one's attention uh, aspect of using the title good sex, but really to make the point that the goodness of sexuality uh, interplays in this, this very closely intertwined way the pleasure and the, um, the, the moral, the legal, the ethical aspects of sexuality. Uh, so that's what I'm going for there. Mm, okay. Do you think the whole moral and ethical side of sex kind of detracts from our pleasure in sex and like our enjoyment of sex and our outlook on sex? I, ideally not at all, no. I, I do this exercise. I mean, there's more than one way I could address that question, but I'll give you an example. I do this exercise in um, the classroom with my students. It's called I call it the Good Sex Story Project. So it's um, an optional bonus uh, activity they can do at the end of the semester to pull up their final grade. There's a variety of optional activities they can do at the end. Re write a research paper, or they can write a short piece of erotica. And that's what I call the Good Sex Story Project. So write a piece of erotica, and it I tell them it can be of any sort. It can be very sweet, uh, just this sort of smoldering glance across the room, or it can be five star, five chili pepper hot, uh, hot and spicy, whatever they want. It can have vampires, it can have uh, werewolves, it can be historical, sci-fi, they can be aliens, whatever they want, but there's only two criteria that has got to satisfy uh, this good sex criteria of it's good as in moral, ethical, legal, uh, meet the standards of full consent, full affirmative adult consent, nobody's drunk out of their mind, no vertical relationships, so no boss, employee sort of thing. Uh, so good in that sense, but then also good in the sense of fully pleasurable, satisfying of desire for all partners involved. So orgasm equality, clitoracy. Uh, if there's a, one of the partners has a clitoris, that clitoris should be engaged in the action, right? So, so reciprocity of pleasure in whatever the sexual encounter or romantic encounter is that they're writing about. So those are the only criteria. It's got to be good as in ethical, uh, fully consensual, good as in pleasurable, orgasms all around. Not that, I mean, one can be too orgasm-centered in life. It's not the only definition of pleasure, right? But could well be important in sexual encounters. <laughs> so fully ethical, consensual uh, sex. And it's actually difficult to to write these scenarios. I mean, to get back to your original question, because there's so much that's 
I think sort of programmed about sexuality and the pop culture and such uses these tropes of like the boss employee romance. I don't know, some like trope in rom-coms and, and such. And so, and, and in porn, um, so much of the, these strict scripts that we carry about sexuality program from the sort of the omnipresence of the mainstream porn undercut that notion that fully consensual sex and fully can be fully pleasurable model mutuality of pleasure for all partners. So we've got to sort of work against some of the um, traditional and I would say old tired tropes about sexuality that are not about the equality of equality of pleasure uh, that are often unconsensual uh, that are like rapey, really. And so we've got to like, get that out of our heads, work against it, and think about, of course, fully consensual sex is sexy. Of course, it's uh, a pathway to full pleasure for everyone. Of course, it's supportive of desire, particularly the desire of people, gender and sexual minorities or women who have not had their desire represented in the culture, who have not been given full cultural permission to experience their own desire, to experience their bodies as desirable. And that can be people whose bodies don't match up with previous standard definitions of what counts as the sexy body, the beautiful body, the good body. So my argument intersects here with disability justice and racial justice. Uh, so white supremacy and ableism has defined the good, sexy, desirable body as young and female and fully abled and you know, sort of curvy and a slim and curvy and busty all at the same time. So, so we're part of this new gender and sexual revolution is about body positivity, also body acceptance and embracing a much wider diversity of what counts as the good, sexy, desirable body, representing that and having that enter into our definition of, of positive sexuality. So I think I got on a roll there and started uh, getting off your question. But <laughs> no, good, good consensual sex, of course, is uh, sexy and uh, leads to, I would argue, um, the best narratives and imagining of, um, of the equality of pleasure and desire. Mm. Mm. Actually, going back to exactly what you were saying about the sort of like idealized body and like beauty standards, I guess we can call it. Like, how does that affect like the pleasure that we can have in like, not just in like the people that we sort of like seek out and are attracted to, but also just like within ourselves? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question and very complicated, right? It's a, and goes in both directions. Like we like to think, for example, that who we're attracted to who we find sexy and desirable in the world is a matter of our own free will. Or maybe there's like this Cupid arrow thing that hits you, but we choose our partners. But if you, if you think about notions of uh, racism and sexism and ableism and ageism, how they work in society, it might well be that we all carry these various forms of implicit bias within us uh, that we sort of, we inculcate as we grow up and you just are surrounded by the, the daily soup of pop culture and representations of the body in society, what counts as the good body. And so there's, there's bias against certain types of bodies. And then that shapes what we find desirable. So there's, there's a, it's a pessimistic notion in that way, right? That who we could fall in love with, uh, who we could 
um, find me a, a, a hot, wild, sexy partner is shaped in these forces outside our control that, that work against justice in that way, that really narrow potential partners that we could find pleasure with and love with in life. So yeah, there's, it's about sort of becoming aware of implicit biases that we can all carry about what counts as, as the good, desirable body and partner, what counts as beauty, and then it going in the opposite direction, thinking about our, ourselves in that way too. So many of us, I, I see this with the students all the time, carry various forms of shame, trauma from big to small. We carry shame and taboo around inside us. It's, it's hard to grow up. I don't know how this compares exactly in the UK versus the US, but I would say it's hard to grow up without having been made to feel bad somehow about your body. You're not doing your body right. You're not embodying your gender right. You're not acting out uh, the scripts for masculinity or femininity appropriately. You're not doing your sexuality right. Uh, you're, not, you're not ever sexy enough uh, for the, the norms of the culture. And we inculcate those messages and then we feel them deep in our body. So uh, it, it's more difficult, I think, for certain groups to connect with the, the pleasure of their own body. Uh, girls and women in particular are often shamed for their sexual desire. Um, boys can have an easier time, I think, owning that sense of their own desire. One of my students, she was writing in uh, some final term paper uh, just this week that she didn't know girls could have orgasms, that women could have orgasms until she was 17 years old. She thought only males had orgasms. And it, it's linked to the poor quality of sex education that people receive. And so boys' orgasms can be normalized in sex ed as part of a sort of human reproduction lesson that a male ejaculates in order to send sperm into the vagina, and that's how a baby comes about, right? But the so much of sex ed is completely silent mm -hmm. about girls' pleasure and women's pleasure. They teach about the penis as part of reproduction. They don't teach about the clitoris. Often, uh, girls have told me they didn't they didn't hear the word clitoris. They didn't know about the clitoris at all. Right, this organ that's designed solely for female pleasure. There's this huge silence around it. So girls often don't know about their own sexual pleasure. They don't feel entitled to explore their own sexual pleasure, to own it. They hear the message from the pop culture and social media and visual culture that they're supposed to look sexy. They're supposed to present, you know, groom themselves endlessly, including like shaving their pubic hair and present a sexy exterior for the male gaze for social approval, et cetera, but to, to feel sexy, to experience and enjoy their own sexual desire is a, uh, it's a cultural lesson that's less present and they feel less permission by the culture to explore and experience their own sexual desire to the extent that they might not even know, you know, that they've got a clitoris, <laughs> that it's there to make their body feel good and that women can experience orgasms too. And then all these double standards kick in and the slut shaming that uh, young people talk about and, and it relates to problems of hookup culture on American college campuses that I think has some sort of parallel for you all in the UK. Um, did that answer your question? That was, that was maybe me on another role, a rampage there. It's an important issue. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, I just find it like crazy how almost part of puberty for women 
is like the first experience of like being sexualized, you know? Mm -hmm. But then women don't often even find out about their own pleasure, like until years and years and years later. Mm -hmm. And I'd never thought about how like the way that sex is taught is like inherently talks about like male orgasm, but women have been constantly sexualized since they like literally got their period, literally. And then don't even know like about the pleasure to be had essentially exactly i know it's so ridiculous there's this crazy paradox in the culture right that women's bodies are constantly sexualized and used in sort of like advertising and consumer culture the sexiness of a woman's body is used to sell all sorts of products right so the sexualization of the woman's Mm. body the female body of the feminine is there everywhere in the culture but literacy about women's sexual pleasure is often, it, it's absent or it's just, a, I think it's, it's a slowly growing discourse. Um, so I'm very interested in this concept mm-hmm. of clitoracy, of literacy about the clitoris, and it's not an original concept for me. Um, it's a, an American artist I follow. Her name is Sophia Wallace, a conceptual artist based in New York City, and she has a a decade-long project uh, that's been ongoing in different forms about clitoracy and taking the organ of the clitoris and using it. She says she wants to create a visual vocabulary of the clitoric that would serve as a complement to all of the phallic imagery that we have, like from tall uh, monuments in city centers, like the Washington Monument here in America. They take this phallic form. So where is the clitoric uh, in in culture, in visual culture and <laughs> representation? So to talk about the clitoris is to talk about female sexual pleasure, that it's as valid as male pleasure, that it's a, a complement to it. it. It relates to this campus hookup culture that I was talking about, that in heterosexual hookup culture, the standard narrative is sort of penis in vagina male orgasm, the pivmo sex that we call it. And that's often if you say, like, tell a student, close your eyes and imagine two people having sex. Like sort of the standard cultural narrative is a man and a woman, the penis in the vagina in a heteronormative perspective, right? And it's a it's a form of sexual activity that leads quite reliably to male orgasm. Uh, it's good for male pleasure. Uh, but for women, most women are not reliably orgasmic through vaginal penetration alone. I think the statistics are something like 20, 25% of women can, are reliably orgasmic uh, just through vaginal penetration. But for the vast majority of women, you've got to engage the clitoris. Uh, the clitor- clitoral stimulation is what leads to most pleasure. So that's a, a discourse that's uh, slowly growing but is absent uh, in, the, in much sex ed, in much standard porn, in much of the sort of, the sort of mainstream, mainstream uh, representations of sexuality. So I think we're seeing more of that, and that's a really mm. important growing discourse uh, that's part of this positive sexuality. If we're emphasizing mutuality of pleasure, quality of pleasure, we need to talk more about the clitoris. Yeah, it's definitely like the way our education system programs us to talk about sex and think about sex and have sex. It's crazy. And it's like we you've mentioned earlier that we are kind of like going through this mass deprogramming in a way, mm-hmm. um, just culturally. Could you talk a little bit about like the other factors that come into that in terms of like what we're programmed to find desirable, like race and mm-hmm. sexuality mm-hmm. and 
beauty standards. We could we could discuss all of those aspects. Um, I've talked just briefly. I mentioned uh, racial sort of intersection of racial issues and white supremacy and the the white body or white beauty standards as counting sort of worldwide for traditional understanding of beauty. So there's the Black is Beautiful movement from the 1960s, from the earlier racial justice, uh, civil rights era has been making the movement. Of course, whiteness does not define beauty, but that sort of colorism uh, exists within communities of color also, a a favoritism for lighter skin or um, these terms such as Uh, featureism and texturism that refers to uh, a a bias toward features or the hair texture that matches up with a a traditional white norm of beauty. So there's a lot of intersections of uh, this sort of body positivity with racial justice also. Disability justice, very important here. And it's something that we are seeing more and more in uh, companies. uh, Underwear companies do this a lot, for example, because they're they use models who are less clothed to advertise uh, underwear, undergarments. And so there has been a movement toward plus size models and real models, like not professional models, just real people and people who have disabilities of various sorts uh, modeling underwear. It might be people of size. It might be someone in a wheelchair, uh, someone with dermatological conditions, people with amputees. So talking about the diversity of the body, the sense that all bodies are good, uh, that there's a goodness to all bodies. So there's a disability justice intersection here with the body positivity and the positive sexuality that I'm talking about. I think the issue of age is also very important and something that you brought up earlier. There's a bias, sort of a stigma against the idea of older people having a full and active sexuality. The notion that somehow sexiness and beauty is the province of the young and that there's this is actually a point that challenges my students the most because they're hugely diverse in all sorts of ways except they're all young they're all (laughs) 18 to 22 and one way that I can freak them out is by telling them like imagine your parents your grandparents having sex right and that will pretty reliably freak them (laughs) because it's just within their family but just the idea of older people having sex being full Mm -hmm. sexual citizens uh, entitled to their sexual citizenship that's still sort of a an an area that has taboo around it in culture right so thinking about expanding Mm -hmm. our sense of sexual justice to include the full sexual citizenship of of older people also the beauty of the older body it's an older woman postmenopausal woman myself it's something that I've I'm coming to think about more and more the body changes, but there's a beauty to tracking those changes also to embracing them, to not trying to fight them, but to moving with thinking about that beauty of older life, a type of wisdom, ideally a a sense of comfort in your body that can develop acceptance as you get old. So there's all sorts of intersections there around issues of the body and embodiment. It's not easy having a body. It's sort of a strange thing to say, but it's, a difficult thing to be embodied and sexuality is some of the like the messiest uh, most high risk aspect of human embodiment we're very vulnerable uh, in our sexuality right we're often naked and open-hearted and with someone else in intense powerful moments so there's risk and great potential for pleasure and connection intimacy with with another Uh, So it's a powerful aspect of embodiment, being human. Yeah. And on like a practical level, how do you think 
anyone from any group that's seen as like other in terms of beauty standards how do people go about deprogramming that kind of like idea that they don't fit into the norm that they're not sexy or desirable because they don't fit this like very narrow standard of beauty like obviously it's important to talk about it and it's so good that we're all talking about it but like in reality how does that translate into like how we feel in our everyday lives and like in our sexual interactions with people well according to my students it's all happening on tiktok <laughs> maybe yeah. like a bit of an exaggeration the social media i think of my the younger generation as uh really riding a wave in this way in america now recent polls show that one out of five of our gen z demographic young people like 18 to 22 are identifying as lgbtq now in the queer community in one way or another so there's more openness and diversity in that young uh, demographic among young young adults. And so I'm very interested in the social media that they use as a way to connect with each other and to try out new ideas. I'm not a very techie person myself. Like doing this podcast with you is pushing me <laughs> to, <laughs> to my technological ability. Apparently, so I'm not on TikTok. Uh, the body positivity influencers my students share this this material with me all the time. Like that's where they find inspiration. And uh, it, it is a double-edged sword. The social media can be where they get a lot of imagery of the perfect body. And you can use all these sorts of filters to Photoshop, to Facetune yourself, to make you look better online than you actually do. So that there, there can be negative pressures there around body positivity, but there's also this community of people who are willing to be real and open and vulnerable and share and create community around that, that I think is really transformative uh, also. So I, I'm hearing a lot. I got to get on TikTok. Is what I'm, <laughs> I'm hearing a lot from my students. That is like if you're looking for practical spaces in the culture to make change, to create more space more openness, more inclusivity and sense of acceptance. I'm, I'm interested in youth media. I think that's where I'd look. Mm. Yeah, I do think that, like, in a, in, in a weird way, even though social media and things like TikTok have now given us access to so many people, that can include, as you said, like, the perfect life and the perfect body, and it gives you access to all this, like, FOMO essentially like fear of missing out and like oh everyone's life is better than mine but there's also like I think especially on TikTok like I think TikTok realistically like might be like the real beginnings of it but it's yeah. like it's given space to a lot of like relatability as well because then you can find people that look just like you and are talking about things that you can relate to or like problems that you've had and then mm -hmm. it kind of like I don't know, I guess it's sort of like helping normalize a lot of different yeah. types of people, different types of bodies, different types of like sex and just normalizing the whole like conversation about sexuality as well, mm -hmm. because there is this openness. Mm. Yeah, that's very important that that normalizing diversity of representation, you've got to see it to be it to know that that's what you can mm. you can be and do also. I think it's like, it's sort of like the, the Me Too movement in that way, that when the Me Too movement started and Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood and these accusations against 
very powerful men, pe- people in positions of power in, in the entertainment industry and in politics and various business realms, then it becomes the safety in numbers, right? There's a there's a, a just a flow of people saying that happened to me too. I know what you're talking about. And the more people do it, the more there's this sense of safety and numbers and support and a community that you know you're not alone. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And breaking silence to be able to speak your truth, speak your story, see it represented out there, know that other people have shared the same experience, breaking that taboo, that you know, we're just going to sweep this under the rug and we're going to stay silent about it, that somehow you shame comes on you for having suffered abuse or harassment also. So taking away all of that and having this, this community of discourse, that's what I think is the, the most powerful thing about this new gender and sexual revolution that I'm seeing. And it's partly because of social media that enables so many people to participate in a discourse and to find community. So there's more conversation in the public sphere around issues of diversity and inclusion and justice than I think ever before. And again, it's not to say we're in any sort of paradise here. There's a lot of backlash that comes from all of that openness of discourse also. And the backlash can be very painful. But there is, I think, conversation and community and a a sense of removing the shame and taboo and having this open space. Uh, on my good days, it makes me feel very hopeful about a positive direction for society. <laughs> what have you identified in your conversations with your students that are like the major problems in how sexuality is being discussed online? Well, online, I guess there's two issues there that are important that come to mind. One is pornography uh, available in the, the space of the internet. So pornography is vastly more accessible than it ever was precisely because of the internet. Um, It can be like pretty much all the students talk about how they were inadvertently first exposed to porn, like in middle school or something as early Mm -hmm. teenagers, uh, someone older shared it with them or laughingly said, look at this, isn't this weird? Mm -hmm. Or you can even stumble upon it like on your phone, on computers Mm -hmm. and such. I think it's very important that we have uh, literacy about pornography. So to teach young people porn literacy, to talk in critical ways about like for parents to have these conversations with their kids and for schools to talk to students about this the omnipresence of porn, how porn does not represent, it's not realistic depictions of sexuality. It's this fantasy factory. And, and I'm not, anti-porn in any absolute way. I think there is a lot of demeaning porn, unhealthy porn that is often uh, oppressive to women or minorities, but there can be ethical porn and slow porn, artistic porn, queer porn, feminist porn, um, alternative porn. Uh, I think those are all interesting. We're not going get, to get a, rid of porn. It's, you know, what, it's not going to disappear, but I think it's very important that we have open, critical conversations about pornography with young people. And the sort of flip side of that or related to it is the need for comprehensive, high quality sexuality education. I think the UK does a better job than the US. I know that you have uh, SRE, sexuality and relationship education in in the school. And it's always, I like that the R is there, the relationship that it's not in America, they talk about sex ed, but 
sex mm-hmm. should not be abstracted from relationship education, right? That ultimately, I mean, there is solo sex. There's nothing wrong with masturbation. It's a good way to get to know your body. But otherwise, most sexuality is about relationship or is in the context of relationships. So how to have healthy, intimate relationships is really what we're teaching, what we should be teaching young people. And sexuality is part of healthy, intimate relationship. But sex ed ideally includes things like communication skills and self-advocacy and negotiation and refusal skills. And a lot of it is about knowledge of yourself. What are your, mm-hmm. your interests, your, your desires, your boundaries, and how do you communicate that to a partner in the context of a healthy relationship? So thinking about the online spaces, I'd say better porn literacy and overall better sexuality and relationship education, which many of my students come to us to University of Alabama from universities all over the country and around the world with just horrific stories of really bad sex ed in their (laughs) middle and high school. Even now in the 21st century, these very shame-based sex ed programs involving you know, like the piece of tape, you know about the piece of tape? <laughs> now you put the piece of tape on your arm and you pull it off. And the more times you put the piece of tape on your arm and pull it off, the less the tape can stick to another piece of tape. And then girls tell me that this, this was the sex ed they had when they were like in, in high school. They are the no longer sticky piece of tape if they had sexual partners before marriage. Yeah, so a very shame-based purity culture uh, model of sex ed. Whereas meanwhile, the boys were learning about orgasms and ejaculation. And and so this is like gender segregated sex ed. So Mm. we need better sex ed, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, at least thank God we have it like nationwide. Because imagine it was like how you guys have it like by state. Yeah. Like it must vary so much. Yeah. It does. It does. Sex ed varies state by state across the United States and then often within each uh, individual school district. And then it can come down to the, the teacher that you have in the classroom. The sort of the, the joke in America is that it's the gym teacher, uh, the PE coach who gets <laughs> stuck with teaching sex ed. And, and then there's that mean girls line that the gym teacher just says, don't have sex or you'll die. Uh, that's sort of the core message that many students really they report well something along those lines yeah we were told it just like videos of gonorrhea in the eyeball and like very shame fear guilt anxiety oriented messages about sex ed that maybe had something to do with uh stis and pregnancy and like unintended pregnancy but that's about it. And what are the things that you think definitely need to be in there that aren't in there, especially to do with like desire? Well, a lot of it is one thing we haven't talked about is about changing gender scripts. So more egalitarian gender scripts. So sex ed would talk about gender equality would be based on egalitarian gender norms. And uh, there we, we did talk about this, this, uh, in terms of girls' desire, letting girls know mm-hmm. that their body is designed for pleasure, that's what the clitoris is there for, and their pleasure is not shameful, and it's not less important than, than a boy's pleasure if they're interested in heterosexual relationships, if they're interested in lesbian relationships, or bisexual, 
or asexual relationships, how those are all uh, important and valued and consistent with uh, a notion of positive sexuality. So the, the message about girls and women is, is, I think, increasingly there. A very interesting uh, growing cultural narrative is about boys, uh, who in a way, despite, well, I guess maybe because of the, the gains of the women's movement and waves of second, third wave feminism, there's been vast expansion in the possibilities of gender roles for women. So women can wear skirts, wear pants. Girls can be a, a trained to be a nurse, to, trained to be a doctor. But the boys have still very much been put in what's called the man box and toxic masculinity rules, still maintain really tight um, gender norms for boys. And I think it's just recently that we've been talking, these notions about toxic masculinity and the new inclusive masculinity have entered more into cultural discourse. You hear more and more about that. And I think that's really interesting. So the guys in my classroom, they talk about this, you know, a guy cannot very easily pull off wearing a skirt, maybe a kilt in Scotland. That's okay. But there, it's still more shameful, like for a guy to train to be a nurse on our campus. That's still a tricky thing for him to pull off. For a guy to cry, that's still a tricky thing for him to pull off. So that there's ways in which these man box rules is still really lock guys into a fairly narrow traditional set of gender norms, whereas uh, girls and women have been able to push against those norms there's still the glass ceiling etc how far can you push rape culture still creates uh, limits but I'm, I'm very heartened by this growing discourse that would certainly have to be in like the, the best comprehensive sex ed curriculum that we could imagine would include this discourse also about how there's more than one way to be a good man boys don't belong in a box restrictive gender rules for boys really horrific forms of bullying all of this man up don't be a sissy big boys don't cry and then like i hate this these lines about you know like grow a pair and and you know like you're just you're a you're acting like a wuss a pussy like this horrible shaming man box bullying my male students talk about this all the time as still a type of gender programming that they are they've been it's, it's, it's like a form of harassment is how I see it and it's no wonder that guys grow up confused about issues like consent if they've been told by the culture in so many ways like a real man doesn't take no for an answer mm. a real man is a sexual player and he's supposed to you know he's supposed to have a lot of sexual partners that's part of the the social status going along with this this man box guy code so those pressures are still very much there, but they're also opening up and there's more cultural discourse about them. The American Psychological Association came out with a really groundbreaking report just a few years ago. It was either in 2018 or 2019 about the psychological cost for boys of this man box set of gender norms and how uh, th there's, a, there's a psychological toll taken on boys and, and men because of that, that is abusive it's it's unnecessary it's not conducive to full the development of a full humanity and it undercuts a notion of positive sexuality also so there's more more discourse about that and I, I think that's a really interesting new area that i would love to see you know, more increasing opening up these man box rules this new inclusive masculinity and that is something we see 
I don't know, like uh, non, non-gendered clothing, the Paris Fashion Week just came out with this whole line of, of asexual, uh, non-gendered clothing. And it's pushing boundaries, you know, like the dude skirt. You, you do see, it's, it's, my students say you can't pull it off in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but in the streets of New York or Los Angeles or London, I'm sure, one can start <laughs> to push these boundaries. The Harry Styles look, you know, on the cover of Vogue. <laughs> So not just for a celebrity to be able to pull it off, but other people too. There's mm-hmm. a trickle down, that opening up of gender norms. Great. Is there anything else that you think is really important to kind of like highlight in this conversation around like good sex and pleasure and desire going forward in terms of what you think the movement needs to be mindful of? I think it's okay. I, I'd like to minimize anxiety around this. I, I see there's, there's a moment of cultural change here, and change can be scary, right? It's not necessarily, particularly for older generations, not what you grew up with, and that can feel scary. It can feel like a lot of change all at once. I was walking on the, passing some people at a cafe a while ago, and I heard this woman talking, some older woman talking to people she was at. She said, my niece just came out as polyamorous. What does that even mean? What, what does this mean nowadays? People suddenly are polyamorous. And so there's this, this sense of change, and it can be scary. Uh, but from what I'm seeing, and the argument that I'm making here is this new gender and sexual revolution. Sometimes I call it a manifesto, manifesto about sexuality is representing very positive change. It's very much in line with notions of strong civil society, democracy, the the American foundational notion of the pursuit of happiness is very central to American democracy, creating space for equity, inclusion, normalizing diversity. Diversity is okay. Nature delights in diversity. Uh, it's okay. This is a good thing for society to make more room, more space, to get people out of boxes. People don't belong in boxes. And it doesn't mean uh, the slippery slope to anything goes and all hell breaks loose and there's, I don't know, anarchy on the street. Uh, this good sex that I'm talking about. There's this strong ethical sub- substratum here of the, the informed consent underlying everything so that mutuality and respect is that the the foundation of it. So I'd say let us uh, have the have faith in our younger generation and trusting this movement toward openness and gender sexual justice. I think it's getting us to a very positive space. Mm. I mean we clearly are hopeful. Since yes. <laughs> we we're trying to bring like these conversations forward and like normalize and diversify, I guess, the things that we talk about and the things that are on the table, if you will. So, yeah, we, we, we're, like, with you in the hope. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Great. Okay, do you want to tell Thank people you. where yeah. they can find your book? Internationally and within the, the U.S., probably the easiest way is to buy it online. It's available mm-hmm. in the big online book sellers. It's published through Indiana University Press an academic press, but it's meant as a trade book for a general audience. So it's full of pictures and illustrations and sidebars and pull quotes. 
it, it doesn't have a heavy ap academic apparatus, so the, the references are all at the end. There's not like footnotes and notes throughout the text. So it's meant to pull readers in and be a very accessible book for a general reader who's interested in these changes in the culture, wants to learn, wants to think, and you can get it, yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo, Chapters, like the big, big online booksellers. Okay. And I'd be delighted to hear from readers and uh, have conversation ongoing. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Hopefully everyone go check it out. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed reading it. So yeah, I think it's a really great resource for people to kind of understand this area a bit more. Thank you. Okay. Another massive thank you to Catherine for joining us. We learned so much from her, as we said, and yeah we hope you guys go check out her work check out her social media her website and everything and yeah we're going to keep having conversations about pleasure and desire we have more great guests in the rest of our mini series so you should definitely go check that out and go check out all our other episodes we're like nearly at 100 episodes it's kind of crazy yeah god so yeah, so much content for you guys to just binge. Go yeah, on, what's exactly. stopping you? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Go join our Patreon at Sextras Podcast to get access to loads of extra content. Find us on social media at Sextras Podcast. It's like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and you can find all our episodes and all of this information on our website www.sexpresspodcast.com go check it out we'll see you very soon bye, bye. you've been listening to sextras presented by honey jane wyatt and maria jose hayo produced by mabel productions Thanks.